Well, hey, good morning, collective. Uh, as Lorenzo just mentioned, we are in our second week of our summer series that we're calling The Story of Justice. And what we're hoping to do over the course of this summer is seek to understand and apply what the Bible has to say, particularly about the subject of justice. And so we began last week with a pastoral prologue. This week we move into kind of chapter one. We're first just asking the question, why the Bible as the basis for this study? For many of you, you don't have to look very far within a history book to find that many of the world's greatest atrocities and injustices have been committed by people with this book in their hands. You go back to the Crusades that were led by the Holy Roman Empire, the Spanish Inquisition, the Third Reich's utilization of Christian imagery and Bible verses for their white supremacy and genocide. These are common examples that many of us may know of, but the reality is regular and deep within American history. The use of the Bible to endorse manifest destiny and the genocide of the native people groups of North America, the Puritan pastors who served as chaplains on slave ships, The preaching within the states that made a claim that though everyone was made in the image of God, black people were unable to control themselves and slavery allowed for there to be social order that would limit crime and vice that would otherwise occur. George Whitfield himself, the quintessential evangelical of his time, advocated for the need for slaves to be converted to Christianity and at the same time the necessity and goodness of the institution of slavery. In 1741, Whitfield testified before Parliament of Georgia repealing for the exclusion of slavery because he himself owned slaves. You see, he held, like many others, the need for these slaves to be converted to Christianity, but the preaching that they heard was quite different than that of their masters. There was a division within churches, separate service times and separate sermons. On a weekly basis, the preaching that slaves would hear revolved around misquoting Bible verses about servants obeying their masters, calling for them not to steal or lie, for this is very wrong. They were given a gospel which gave salvation and freedom up in heaven one day while commanding them to receive their slavery gladly, to denounce their desire for freedom as actually being demonic, and for those that did desire to repent and believe in Jesus, to profess their faith in him, alongside their baptismal vows, they would also have to vow that they would not try to escape from slavery, to seek freedom. You see, there is a thread that runs constantly through American history. Common preaching of the day, specifically uh, in the South, right uh, leading up to the Civil War, made a case that uh, black people were the descendants of the cursed son of Noah, Ham. And therefore, they were cursed or predestined by God to be their slaves. It's just the way things are. are. C.F. Kyle and F. Delich went down as saying in their teachings that Africans and their descendants are destined to be servants, to be slaves, and should accept their status as slaves in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Again, Reverend Buckner Payne, who made a case based off his utilization of of a handful of Bible verses, made the case that black people were not human at all. They were not the image of God. They did not have souls. That The understanding of that day was they were more akin to beasts than humans. You see, we have to do something with the fact that the Bible has been behind these sorts of injustices. The Christian acceptance of the law of partis sequitur ventrum, which allowed for male masters to sexually abuse their enslaved women and then to enslave their own children to sell them to other 
plantations. American history is marked by countless cults, the subjugation of women, the dehumanization of LGBTQ community. The list goes on of injustices and deep evil that has been committed by people with Bible verses on their lips. Before we set off on examining this summer what the Bible says about justice, I have to ask, is this even the right book for the job? What do we do with this blood-stained book? For many today, it's an outright rejection. If there's any hope for humanity, it will be without rather than with this book. As statues of Confederate generals are being torn down, should the Bible join them? Is this thing just too demeaning and evil to be in the public square? Does it belong locked away in a museum? For others, their faith in the Bible has caused them to ignore or explain away the injustices that have been done with this book and attempt to keep their faith nice and neat and clean. For likely many of us, aware of some of this history, but yet deeply in love with this book and with the movement of Jesus, it has left us staring down at our Bibles asking, what do I do with you? Wherever you are today, I want you to know that you are not alone in this wrestle. Not only am I with you in this, but throughout the history of the church, the people of Jesus have been hard-pressed with what do we do with the blatant misuse of Scripture against fellow image bearers. That lineage, that line goes all the way back, and within that lineage, to a young pastor named Timothy, serving in the city of Ephesus. Today, we're going to be reading from a portion of a letter that he received from the Apostle Paul, a letter which helped him understand and, and, and come to terms with not just the Bible's misuse, but also how to recapture its truest use. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, the letter to him, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, to rightly handle the word of truth, or for the sake of our series, how to do justice to the story. And so if you want to uh, begin to turn, 2 Timothy, chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, but as a bit of a background before we jump right into the middle of this book. Like I said, Timothy was a young pastor who had journeyed with the Apostle Paul on church planning missions all around the Roman Empire, starting up these new communities of Jesus' people. And during their journeys, they came to the city of Ephesus, where they developed and built up this new church community. But Paul had Timothy stay in Ephesus to be their pastor as he moved on to continue the work, specifically for Timothy in his pastoral work to keep an eye out for these particular individuals who had come up from within the church, these two men, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were beginning to use the Bible to mislead people in the church. In particular, they were developing a new teaching that was utilized to prey upon some of the most vulnerable within the community, some of these wealthy widows who they could manipulate. And so Timothy, in the midst of all of this work, is writing the Apostle Paul, kind of this father figure and mentor, saying, what do I do with these men? What do I do with these people that are misusing this book that I love so much? And the two letters of First and Second Timothy are Paul's replies, where as you read through them, you see he spends more than half the letter talking about dealing with these sorts of people in Ephesus. In his second letter, that's what builds us up to, Second Timothy chapter three. Well, let's read the first nine verses where Paul writes to young Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, and that's just a way of talking about the days that we are in right now, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In all of this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, or that is, turn such people away. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak, that is, vulnerable women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in their minds, disqualified, or that is counterfeit regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. So this is some heavy language that Paul has just laid down here. He's not pulling any punches as he describes not only what's going on within Ephesus, but Hymenaeus and Philetus. It's not hard to see the pattern underlying that these false teachers, what's going on underneath the surface because we have seen so many individuals like this throughout human history. Those who have the appearance of godliness but are filled with all kinds of sinful vices. Those who use their words to capture or that is enslave the vulnerable. In the case of Ephesus, it's these, these widows. Throughout human history, we've found it been time and again, it's been the most vulnerable that have been captured or enslaved by the use of false teaching. He gives the example of Janus and Jambres. These uh, two were uh, the magicians in Pharaoh's court who were able to duplicate Moses' miracle, you know, the staff turning into a snake and the waters turning into blood. They were able to duplicate these miracles, not for the sake of liberating God's people from slavery, but to keep them in slavery in Egypt. These are people that seem to have the same level of power and yet are using it not for freedom and justice, but rather to further injustice and slavery. Paul compares Janus and Jambres to Hymenaeus and Philetus. You see, these are individuals who, as he says, are opposed to truth. They're corrupted in their minds. They're disqualified regarding the faith. They're using the Bible to vindicate their own greed and pride and evil and abuse and brutality and treacherousness and sexual pleasure. As in Ephesus, so in America. From the seemingly harmless, kind of strange televangelists like Kenneth Copeland to the post-Christian liturgists, to the slave-holding pastors and the pulpit-pounding fundamentalists. There is a vibrant radiance of those who take Scripture and utilize it to their own ends and means. History has been marked by individuals who, underneath the use of their Bible verses, of pastoral titles, and even spiritual power, even as Paul says, the appearance of godliness, they are counterfeits. They are consciously mishandling Scripture to deceive, capture, and mislead. This goes back even before Timothy with generations of Israel's history littered with false prophets. This leads me at least to begin to ask these questions of why would God drop and give us this word that could be so easily mishandled and utilized for such great injustice? It's a question that goes all the way back to why in the garden would God choose to partner with humans leaving some sort of option and availability for them to misuse the gift for evil. Maybe some of you will bring that up in the Q&A and we'll get into that more. 
But the reality is Paul is not surprised with those who misuse Scripture for the sake of furthering their own injustice. You see, Paul's concern is, is, is that because of them, as, as Peter puts it in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, that because of these individuals, these false teachers who corruptly handle Scripture, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's a, a blasphemy that creates these two faiths that lead for so many to not know what to do with the Bible at all. These two faiths have been detailed and written about, kind of mirroring what Paul says here in 2 Timothy by uh, Frederick Douglass, a former slave, abolitionist, statesman, and preacher in the late 1800s, who he wrote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. He goes on to say, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. What we have to acknowledge is that the work that has happened through the scriptures of what Frederick Douglass is pointing out is exactly what Paul sees as potentially happening within Ephesus and as what was beginning to happen. Now, obviously, we're dealing with different scales here, right? This little new you know, sect that came out of uh, Judaism, this new following movement of Jesus that were minorities within the culture, it's, it's playing out on a much smaller scale. But as Christianity has grown throughout history, the scale and the import, the level of injustice obviously grows with the influence of that scripture. But, but, but again, to come back to this, throughout the Bible, it's clear what God's response is for these sorts of people who maliciously twist scripture. Paul says that their end will be what their actions deserve. The apostle Peter says their condemnation and destruction hang over their heads even to this day. Jude says that the utter darkness has been reserved for them. Jesus himself said that it is better for them to have a millstone, that is a giant stone tied around their neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea than for them to stand in the day when he shows up and they are called to account for what they've done with his word. You see, my normal, your normal aversion to ideas like God's wrath or the judgment that Jesus might bring is, is scary for us. We want to explain that away. I would argue that when we see the scriptures being misused for the sexual subjugation of women so that men could enslave their own children, we, we desire and crave for God to do something about it. And again, the Q&A, we can get into why not now? Why not in this life? Why judgment at his return? But the reality is, is that we see this, this reported in scripture, but what Paul's focus and what I want to make our focus for the remainder of our time is how in the letter to Timothy, Paul doesn't focus primarily on God's response to these false teachers, to this misuse of scripture, this abuse of the story, but what Timothy's response should be how to combat those who are misusing scripture to subjugate and bring injustice on people, how to combat them in Douglas's words, how to reject and be the enemy of them. Look with me in verses 10 through 17, where he says, 
You, however, not like them, Timothy, you, however, you have followed my, that is Paul's teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed and knowing from whom you learned it. And now from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man, or that is, the, and he's talking to Timothy, you, Timothy, but, but the, the scope behind man or woman may be complete equipped for every good work. So what do we just see? What's Paul doing here as his way to combat these false teachers who are bringing injustice in the church of Ephesus? What, is, what, what might Paul's words be to us as we look at the injustices done through the Bible in American history? The first thing Paul does is he shows and compares the vices of Hymenaeus and Philetus with the virtues of his own story. Now, this is not Paul saying, look at me, I'm great. He's simply saying, look at the fruit that grows out from false versus true teachers. These guys are lovers of self, lovers of money. They're pride. They're, they're brutal. Look at my patience. Remember my love. Remember my perseverance. Do you see the difference that comes from different ways of handling this book? He calls for him to continue in what he received from childhood, pointing back to what we know about Timothy from the book of Acts, that though he was raised in a a mixed home with his father being a uh, Gentile who worshiped the Greek gods and his mother being a Jew who worshiped the Jewish gods. It was uh, the Jewish God, Yahweh, the God that, that shows himself in Jesus. It's what set the scale for Timothy to hear about the message of Jesus. That Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother in the scriptures. And so Paul's calling for him, remember what you learned from your mother and your grandmother. Remember what you've seen in my life and just compare that with what you see So many of us want to deconstruct our faith because we're seeing the misuse and abuse of scripture. Paul's words are, let's deconstruct the misuse, but let's do it with the Bible open. Let's utilize this story to reshape us and not run from it because look at what it can develop within people, what he calls the sacred writings. Here, Paul moves on to give us some of the strongest teachings in the Bible on the Bible. And he develops within this a way for us to move forward in the midst of false teaching, not to reject the book or to ignore the injustices done by them, but to reclaim and move forward with a more robust understanding of the Bible, or as we're putting it, to do justice to this story. So just to break this down, what does he say? Well, first, that scripture is a story. Now, this would have been assumed for Paul and Timothy, but has to be restated over and over again because the American evangelical way of utilizing Scripture most often is that we have turned it into, uh, maybe you heard this growing up, basic instructions before leaving earth. They make a little acronym out of the word Bible. It's become a handbook for morality at best. Oftentimes, the Old Testament gets allocated to pulling stories for our little kids' uh, nurseries or, nurse or, or kids' stories. And then really, it's kind of, you know, some parts of the Gospels, a couple parts of the Epistles. And really, it's more about what it means for me and my individual. I'm kind of pulling the—it doesn't exist that way. Not for Paul and Timothy. 
You see, for Paul and Timothy, all of history around Scripture, they understood this as a story. It's why over just under half of the Bible is narrative. It's storytelling. And even all of the poetry and prose connect itself to the story that it's telling. So it's not a handbook for how to go to heaven when you die or moral examples for your kids or poetry when you're sad or a a prop for your politics or even for your Instagram with your coffee kind of set just this side. It is an epic seven-act narrative of the story of humanity and God's work within it from creation to sin to the Israel to their exile to the arrival of Jesus to him launching his church and then ultimately ending in renewed creation. These seven acts are the major movements of this grand epic, and it's the map of how we're going to be tracing out this series. So you're going to be hearing more about that. But more than that, what does Paul actually say explicitly here? Assuming the story, he goes on to say what? What's this story meant to do? He says it's wisdom literature. It's meant to make you wise, to open your mind and your eyes to a new way of of existing that is based around who Jesus is, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And that through him, salvation is available for all who trust, who have faith, who give their allegiance, their trusting loyalty to Jesus as that person. All of the Bible is a story that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life and death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. This is, Jesus explicitly claims this about himself in Luke 24 and John chapter five, where he says this book, this story points to, patterns, leads to, is the runway towards and then flows from me. This story is the story of the person and work of Jesus. It all builds up to and flows from that. Next, Paul says that this story is the story of the Spirit. It is God-breathed or or literally God-spirited in in the original Greek. It's where we get the word inspired, inspirited. These sacred scriptures, this, this thing here before us is not just a human book of reflection on God's way of working within the world but that somehow through the miracle work of the Holy Spirit in the individual lives of its authors, what we have here is this human and divine book that has been so providentially worked through that what we have before us here is everything that God has desired for his people to know, to make them wise for salvation through the Messiah Jesus and to give their obedience to him. Paul and Peter saw this within one another's writings. They saw this within the Old Testament. Jesus claimed this for himself. And then the next thing that Paul claims is that this story is not just inspired, but it's a story of authority. By this, what does he say? That it's, it's profitable for teaching and reproof. That is, it challenges you. It gets in your face for correction. It's authoritative. It is an authoritative story. Now, the question is, how can a story be authoritative? You know, if, if this was just blanket um, commands and things, it'd be much easier to call it authoritative. How is a story authoritative to us? N.T. Wright gives a helpful analogy that's stuck with me for years. He just says, sit down for a moment and suppose that there existed a seven-act Shakespearean play whose sixth act had been unwritten. Such an incredible work, so well done, so much wonderful characterization that everyone agreed this thing had to be put on the stage. It had to be played out. But what do we do with the missing act? It'd be inappropriate just to skip to the seventh and final act, so what should we do? Well, 
what we could do, and there's actually some musicians that have done this with um, orchestral pieces. There are other plays that have actually done something like this, but in N.T. Wright's example, what you would do is you would give the key parts to highly trained, sensitive, experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first five and then the final act. In the culture of Shakespeare, in his time, they would understand as much as they could about the story, about the mind of the author, and then what they would do is act out or improv the sixth act for themselves. And so for this group of actors, the existing acts before them and what they saw as how the story ended would be the authority for them. And so as they were working this through, they would be able to object to the poor improvisation on the grounds that this or that, the way you're playing that character is inconsistent with what was seen in the other acts. This subplot or theme must be continued or you trying to introduce some theme that wasn't set up previously in the story just doesn't make sense. And so this idea is what the, the, the means for the story of Scripture to be our authority is that we understand that creation and sin and Israel and exile and Jesus and the opening act of the church, and then where we know history is going in Jesus' return in the new heavens and the new earth is that we are in this little sixth act called to understand what has been done so far so that we might continue the play and then move into the final act. You see, as actors, we're responsible for entering into the story as it stood, understanding how to appropriately draw these acts together to put it into effect by speaking and acting in our lives with both innovation as it's a new thing, but also consistency. We are a part of a story that's already ongoing. And so then what does that mean for these false teachers? These are actors who go against, they contradict the pre-existing acts to make it about them or to introduce some new cool idea. It leads those in the, the audience to be confused. It leads their fellow actors to be livid because what you're doing is inconsistent with the story as we know it. You see, the story of the Bible is our authority, not in blind biblicism, but out of our allegiance and faith to the story that culminates in Jesus. Our allegiance and trust in Jesus is why we receive this story as the authority for us. He's the one who has told us how this story is how we can know him better and understand our part in the play. This story is authoritative. It teaches us. It corrects us. It gets in our face, and, and, it, and we're called to walk within it as well. But notice as we close that also, it's not just a story of authority and it's not just an inspired story. It's not just a story that's all about Jesus, but it's also the story of, of justice. You see, what does this word do? What does scripture do? It's profitable, he says, for training in righteousness. And you're gonna hear more about this in the coming weeks. The Greek word for righteousness is the same word for justice. And he says specifically that they might be equipped for every good work. Again, good work is not just about you reading your Bible. It's not just about you, you tithing to the church. It includes those things, but the far larger understanding of that is you being a person of righteousness and justice within the world. The Bible, this story, as you marinate on the narrative of this book, it will form you into the sort of person who is equipped for righteousness and justice, for doing good works. See, Paul gives Timothy here how to deal with the injustices brought out by these false teachers, those who have abused scripture. 
And for Paul, he tells Timothy and and what we're gleaning from this part of the story to allow it to become part of our own story is that the right use of this story will teach you how to denounce their lies and train you in justice and good works so that you may counter the evil done by them. For Timothy, that justice and good work was ensuring that widows were cared for so that they might not be vulnerable anymore to the capture and deceit of those teachers, which is why Paul in First and Second Timothy is regularly hitting on caring for the widows for Timothy. It's the way that he counteracts the injustice done by these false teachers. See, Paul's focus is not just on getting up and preaching against their teaching, though that is part of it, but also addressing the primary ways their false teaching has led to the vulnerable to be preyed upon. Doing justice to the story leads for us to be people who participate in the story of justice. This is what Paul develops. And and might I say that as we go into this series, that this is the the understanding, is we are seeking to, to unpack so much of the work that's been done around what this book says by American preachers over the past you know, 400 years, even before the, the birth of America. And, and we need to reclaim what this book says. We need to deconstruct American Christianity, but reconstruct it with the Bibles open before us as we do justice to the story. At the beginning of our teaching, I talked about how the greatest injustice seemed to have been done by folks with the Bible in their hands, and we cannot deny that. But we also cannot forget that for those who do justice to the story, it has led to the greatest acts of justice within history being done through them because of the Bible. And unlike those injustices, they grew not from cherry-picked verses or manipulated texts, but grew out from justice being done to the story as Christians join into that story. And it's changed history in its wake. Tom Holland, who's a uh, secular, he was, he is a secular historian. Last year, he came out with his 624-page tome uh, called Dominion, how uh, the Christian uh, revolution uh, remade the world. And so not, not a Christian, but this is his reflection. That every human being possessed an equal dignity is not remotely self-evident as truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or race, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of that principle, the inherent worth of each individual human being, lay not in the French Revolution, not in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the, in the Enlightenment, as Nietzsche so contemptuously pointed out, but in the Bible. You see, it was out of the Bible, it was out of Christianity that so many things changed about the world today that we now take for granted. The concept that being weak and lowly did not make you less of a person, but in fact, in some cases, made you more of one than being rich and powerful. The formation of universal human rights, the ending of slavery, the concept of caring for the poor as the primary responsibility of those in power, ending widespread infanticide, ending human sacrifice, building the first universities and schools, seeing the world as one that progresses rather than one that is caught in the unending cycles of injustice and death. You see, the philosophical mind of the West was built on the ethics set forward in the story of justice which we're going to be unpacking over these next 11 weeks. And so wherever you are in those groups that we talked about, the reality is for some of you, you have wanted to throw the Bible into the museums along with the Confederate statues. The argument that the Bible itself makes is like, 
please take a longer look at how to use this thing rightly before you toss it aside. And also to acknowledge that even your contempt for the Bible because of how you feel like it's been utilized to go after particular people groups. Your priority for those people groups comes from the subconscious deep ways that the Western world has been shaped by the influence of this book. You're you're cutting out the feet from underneath you as you try to, we have to acknowledge that this book has given the world something that the world could not and did not get to on its own merit. Similarly, for some of you that just love the Bible so much that you have been so afraid to name how it's been misused, if we are going to move forward as the American church, and even just to limit it for us on the West Side in 2020, we have to acknowledge the ways that false teachers have misused this so that we might speak truth in the midst of their lies and also so that we may adequately give justice where injustice has been done through it. And so this is what we're going to be developing over the next few weeks. Understanding how this story of justice motivates us as people who then see our story as being part of it. And that as we do that, we are able to go after those false actors who pretend to know how the story goes because we've become so in love with the story that this thing tells.